We're going to go this morning to Matthew chapter 1, and uh, we're in chapter 1 on the name of Jesus. That's the topic. Um, I always find, I've mentioned this over the years, not as a way of apology, but when you come to December, and often there are Christmas messages, it's, it's kind of hard to go over something that's new. Uh, it's a familiar, probably the most familiar story in the Bible is the Christmas story, as far as uh, in uh, in uh, among Christians and among Christian nations and whatnot. But if somebody knows a story from the Bible, and by the way, just as that song said, it's those stories that unite our generations. One person shared with another person and handed that on again. And this morning as we gather, we also hand on those stories as such. And I want to look at... Um, Uh, a text this morning and we're going to read down through Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 it says now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Spirit and then Joseph her husband being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, And he called his name Jesus. Lord, again, we acknowledge that name which is above all names, the name of Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you, O God, as we gather here this morning, we can open up your word. We can look into your book. We can know more about who you are and why you came, Lord. And so I pray again that you would just do your work as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. That verse 21, very special verse to me, I've said that probably every year since we've been here, Uh, it was the verse that really led me to Christ. Back in 1987, when I was a senior in high school, in this time of year, I was taking the EMT class for the uh, back, that we held it up at the hospital, and at the semester break, which happened right about this time of year, um, we ended up... uh, Gary Gardner was teaching, and, and Gary, you know, Pastor Gary, but he, he passed out a little gift-wrapped, um, well, it was a gift, I didn't know what it was, it kind of felt weird when I got it, it wasn't really heavy enough to be a book, but it was something that was hard and square, and it didn't feel like a box of chocolates or anything like that, and I, I wasn't sure, and I got in my car that night uh, after class, and it was sitting on the seat, and I said, well, nobody really knows if I open that early, right? So I opened it up, and it was a It was a wooden plaque, just a simple piece of wood, and inscribed on that was Matthew 121. And I thought about that. I thought, well, that's kind of an odd gift to give somebody. 
Um, and that name Jesus, just as I have it in the verse here, it stood right out. And, and I thought about that because here I had sort of thought I was a Christian and yet I knew I was not really in a relationship with Christ like some of the Christians I knew were. Those that had witnessed to me over the years, those that had talked to me about who Jesus was and that I needed to be born again. And, and I, I knew they had a relationship that I didn't. And I had that on my seat and I can remember saying that's kind of a strange gift to give somebody. But over the next months, it took about four months, almost five months really, before it all made sense. And I had started going out to the Bible church there and uh, then located in Winterville and, and began hearing the word of God. And, and in May of 1988, just before I graduated high school, I received Christ as my Savior. Shortly thereafter, I, that July, I left and went into the military. And uh, I thought, oh no, I probably made a huge mistake because it's, it's a hard environment for a Christian. Yet the Lord was with me, and I can testify to that. He brought the right people into my life at the very right time, and he put me right in the right spots in all that. In November of 1988, after I had completing my, my advanced training, we, uh, I got stationed or sent the um, orders to go to Germany. And I ended up in a little community called Aschaffenburg. Now, this is a summer picture. It was, it was a little dreary and kind of gray when I landed there. Everything was cold and wet and some snow every now and again and all that. But Aschaffenburg is a beautiful little uh, city in, uh, in Germany, about 40 kilometers upstream from Frankfurt in, along the Main River. Uh, and it's a, a, just a quaint time this is more uh, in keeping with what i saw when i went there it was all lit up for christmas and the christmas mark the market was there and i remember my first experiences in germany when i landed there uh was going out into the market and the person that had encouraged me to go into the market with a group of other gis was uh, a lady um her we called her frau regal and uh, frau regal was a, a german language helper and she had, one of the things we had to do when we landed in Germany was uh, take about, I don't know, it was probably like three weeks of a class on German. And we would go there a few times a week and we would learn German phrases and words and things. And I never did pick up German that well, but uh, enough to get around and read signs and those kind of things. And, and she took us down to that market and we went through there. And then she uh, took our, our group of GIs, there was probably seven or eight of us in that little class, and she invited us over to her house and her home uh, in the, on one evening right before Christmas, and we had a traditional Bavarian meal, and we sang uh, some Christmas carols in English, and she taught us in, in German, and I thought, what a, a special time it was. My two years there in the Schaffenberg, uh, it looked a lot like this, a little kind of tight little community. It was now spread out a lot more, um, and we were there, of course, with the U.S. military and all that. But just 43 years before I got there in a time of peace and a time when we were have the, had the privilege of sitting in someone's home and, and singing Christmas carols, it was a different story in a Schaffenberg. Schaffenberg was one of the uh, final really heavy battles that ever took place as the uh, allied forces in particular the u.s third army moved through that region and as they did much of germany was giving up and there were not really many soldiers left to uh, that weren't you know um, like the ss troops and others that were really hardened 
And so they were used to, at this point, about two weeks of people giving up. But when they came to Aschaffenburg, which they thought would be another city that would just give up, it became a, 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 a really a hotbed of um, a defensive force that there was a, a man there who was an SS leader, and he had put such fear into the community and the people. And by doing so, when I say he put fear into them, uh, anybody trying to escape and to retreat or anything like that, he had them shot and killed and hanged and publicly. And so you can imagine what that did to the population. And um, there were 12-year-old boys in uniform and men that were in their 60s that were in uniform waiting for the Americans to come, and they were all armed. And it was a, a really hard-fought battle. By the time in late March of 1945, when the, they rolled into Schaffenberg, the U.S., uh, it, it was about a week of heavy fighting. In particular, Sunday, Easter Sunday, April 1st, 1945, the heaviest fighting that went on. And it, they ended up, uh, the Germans would not surrender because of the orders of this uh, one man. And they ended up having to uh, just dump thousands and thousands of rounds of artillery on the city and leveling much of it. Uh, and the Germans, which had a force of about 6,000, lost 3,000 of them as casualties in that time, and the rest re- uh, eventually did uh, capitulate and surrender. But it was quite something. Frau Rigal had, had talked a little bit about that during that time, and I remember that. And At the time, I was 18 years old. I didn't really think much about it. I was probably just turned 19, I guess, and I hadn't really thought much about that, but now I, I appreciate that ground that was fought over and that city which had been rebuilt in just that 43 years from that time to when I was there in the late 1980s. But I, I want to come back to that verse I shared with you. It's not all about the stories, but stories connect us, and they connect generations. Frau Rigal had been there when she was a young girl, actually, and, and she had lived in those times. And I can only imagine what it would have been like in the city of Aschaffenburg when all those artillery rounds were coming down. And they actually, uh, the U.S. tried not to just carpet bomb the civilian areas, but it ended up having to because the German forces were embedded right in those areas. And it was the only way they could get them to surrender. And it was, it was an awful time, just an awful time. But yet, here was a woman uh, all these years later graciously allowing us to be in her room uh, and in her uh, house, and we were celebrating a, a German Christmas. What a wonderful time, wonderful memory that I have. But it was interesting. I was invited over, and I thought, well, what could I bring as a Christmas gift? And I didn't have anything, really, and I didn't even know how I would go out and buy something that, what would, what would she want, you know? But I thought I ought to bring something, and I looked on my wall there in the barracks, and I had that verse, that plaque, from Matthew 121. And I took that and I wrapped it up and I brought it and I gave it to Frau Rigal and her family. And she accepted that gift um, uh, with joy. And I wanted to make sure she knew that it's all about Jesus. And Jesus is the reason we celebrate Christmas. Well, that name Jesus, what does it mean? And I'm going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And kind of go over this, but the name of Jesus. And there are four things that I want to look at. And the first one is this, that a name declares someone's identity. And and in some cases, like in the Bible times, and even 
in our times as well, names have meanings to them, don't they? Now, some people name their children today, and they don't really think of what the name might mean. They might like the sound of it or something like that, but still a lot of people do that, and they look those things up. Actually, Jack, my name that I go by, my real name is John, and Jack is a nickname for John. Don't know why. It's the same amount of letters, but it, it is. And, and John means God's gracious gift, I guess. I don't know. So I try to remind my wife of that all the time, but anyways. <laughs> Sandra means helper. And she is definitely a helper. It also means defender. Defender. And I I don't really want to cross her on that. But anyways, no. She's looking at me like, don't go there, Karen. That's it. (laughs) How about Robert? We have a few bobs here, right? Yeah. It means bright flame. So how about that? How about Dawn, ruler of the world? Did you know that? No? Oh, okay. Okay. now, I came across Guy, or Guy, it's, that means, and I'm sorry I'm using you guys, but I'm just, it, mean, it comes from a French derivation of meaning guide, noble guide. So, all right, I like that. Alan, now this one I don't understand, it says handsome. <laughs> I do not know what your parents were thinking, but anyways, amen. <laughs> no, uh, I, I, I kid you on that, but of course, names have, have meanings, don't they? Uh, and in the Bible, Noah means comforter. Uh, Jacob means uh, supplanter or trickster. You know, how about David, meaning beloved? Uh, Abraham, father of a multitude. Moses, drawn out. Why? Because he came out of the Nile, right, and delivered out of the Nile. Um, or how about Michael, one who is like God? The name of the archangel Michael. How about Joseph? God will add. And you could go on and on and on. Names have meanings. Well, you come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, and you have, uh, you have the name of Jesus. And it stands right out in that verse, not only because it's all capital in the King James and the authorized version, also the New King James, it's all capitalized, because it is a proper noun, a proper name, but it stands out because that's the name given to the Savior. And the literal name, Jesus, in our English, and Yesu in, in Greek, and also in the Hebrew would have been Yeshua. That's really the name that Jesus would have been called by, Yeshua. It literally means salvation. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament, as you come across the word in English, salvation, most often it is Yeshua. It is that same name. And the name of Jesus carries with it the idea of who he is or what his identity is. Just like when you give your name, it's an identity, and you maybe think of someone that has that name or something like that. Well, Jesus, and that's why it says, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, we know a little bit about him because Jesus, although it was a name that was common, there were other people named Jesus, uh, his name was unique in that, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but only because If you look at the genealogies that are recorded in the family of Jesus, um, you don't have another name, Jesus. And usually, just like we do, we often name our children after someone maybe in our family. And that used to be much more traditional than it is now. But, for instance, my name, John, all right, is uh, my dad's name. And his grandfather was also John, Jean. And you go back about every other generation, there was a Jean or John. 
and it goes right back probably to 2,000 years ago that way. And that's the way things are. Sometimes we do those things. But in Jesus' family, there wasn't anybody else named Jesus. That was the angel's name or the name God chose. But the angel delivered that message to Joseph and told him, you're to name him Jesus. And I think it's, again, showing his origin or where he was from, his identity. That he was not of this earth like everybody else, yet he was of this earth as well. And we know, of course, from Luke's gospel that we know that there uh, in Luke's gospel, we have the account of uh, the Christmas story. And we pick it up in Luke one twenty six. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named, named Nazareth. And then verse 31, and behold, he tells Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth the son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. We know that Jesus, though he be fully human, he was of divine origin. He was God, God the Son. And that's what the angel says to Mary and also into Joseph as well. And we know that because though he was a real human baby, he also, he, his name given there at Bethlehem when he was born or just before he was born, his name chosen, but he was always the Son, always God. John, the gospel writer of John, right? John begins not at the birth of Christ, but with the eternality of Christ, right? John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh. That's the Christmas story. And dwelt among us. That means he put his tent right in our, among our tents. He erected his dwelling place. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This one, Jesus, the one who is salvation, his identity, is a little different than your identity. See, he comes from eternity. And he is without sin. And yet, in my family, we're a big long line of sinners. I needed somebody who would come into my family and yet would not be touched with sin so that he could be my savior. Jesus meets that criteria. I'm thankful for that. He was born in Bethlehem. He came to earth. I like what Philippians chapter 2 says. Again, a familiar text to you probably. It says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You must have, and uh, back, I'll, I'll move on to that one in a second, but we have, we have here the what we call... The humiliation, not in the sense we think of humiliation, but the humbling of Christ in that he came to this world and he put on flesh and he was very man. 
He was exactly that, but yet he was also God. The New Living Translation, which is that, it's a translation, but it is, um, translates the Greek uh, wording here and puts it into uh, more of a familiar way an English person would reason in their mind if they were a Greek person. So that's how the NLT does stuff. And I don't always you know, go to it. This sometimes can be a little confusing, obviously, but I like to sometimes get the sort of what the passage means to my mind. In my mind, you know, sometimes I have to have it simplified. And this is what it says in the NLT. It says, you must have this same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. I like how that that reads it because it really speaks clearly in my mind what those Greek words underlying when it says he was in the form of God. No, he wasn't just like appearing or in the form of a man. I mean, he wasn't that he just appeared as a man, but he was a man. That's what that word means. And it's very clear. And we see his identity. Being very man, but also very God. His name declares his identity. His name also declares his mission. And you understand that we sometimes make a lot about Christmas time. I don't think that's wrong. But we often celebrate. You know, here we are. We take a whole month, really, to celebrate. We begin singing Christmas hymns. And uh, we sing them in November, usually, all the way through probably into January. Uh, and we have Christmas caroling coming up. Those are all great and good things. And every now and again, I'll throw one in in July just to really mess with people's minds. But, you know, they're good. There are things that we can celebrate about the birth of Christ. But the, the birth of Christ is not only why he came. He came so that he might go to a cross and die for you and me as our Savior, Yeshua. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you look at the verses that precede that, there are a long list of names that are very hard to pronounce, some of them. And it goes down, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and begot so-and-so, and it goes all the way down, and then you get to Jesus. And why is his name Jesus? Because he came to save those people and his family. They're all sinners. And your family, too. I know some of you say, yeah, you know my family. They're a bunch of sinners. But no, let's go even more, you and me. Because we're sinners and we need salvation. That's why he came. Jehovah is salvation. That's the literal word, that uh, the, the root there that is found in the name Yeshua. I like that. We read a little bit about Jesus' mission. In his own words, Mark 10, 45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here's the King of kings, the Lord of all glory. He comes down to Bethlehem's manger and his birth being, think about the birth of Christ, right? The humbleness in just that act. He chooses an obscure city in Judea, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. He is born in a very humble abode where animals were present. (laughs) 
a manger being his crib. Think about that. A lot of kings out there that weren't born that way. Right? They were born in the lap of luxury with the finest of things and have known very little suffering or anything like that or certainly not living among the animals. But not Jesus. Why? Because he didn't come to be served, but to serve and not just serve as we think of handing out some present or something, but to serve by giving himself. Paying for sin. That's what it says. To give his life a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is? When uh, Let's, for instance, and it goes with that word redeemed. We've talked about that before. For instance, if someone was a slave and you wanted to buy them out of slavery, you would pay a ransom. You would say, this person, to buy them out of slavery would be this cost. And by the way, it was not God's intention ever to have man put other men into slavery, or women, or little boys and girls. But it is a sinful world that does that, and has done it. And it is the story of human history. One person trying to lord over another. Christ says this, I'll break that cycle, and I will redeem you. The price isn't a few thousand dollars, or millions of dollars. The price is the life of God. That's a ransom. It's a ransom you can't pay. I can't pay. But he can. John chapter 18. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is about to go to a cross. And he says to Pilate, the one man that could deliver him at this time from the cross. And he says, for this reason I came into the world. He was on mission. Oh, I'm glad he was. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Well, his name, and I'm going to break this down a little more specifically. I've already talked about his humanity, but I'm going to break it down a little more specifically. What does that mean, that he became human? He was a man. His name declares his humanity. The name Jesus had you in mind, because it has the name of salvation. Jesus didn't need to be saved, but he is salvation. Jesus. What do we get from that? Oh, so much that we get from that is really what it is. When you read of the life of Christ in the Gospels, and then as you go through the New Testament and you see, and in the Old Testament as well, the prophecies concerning Christ, Messiah, and you have the very fact that he would be a suffering servant. He would be the Savior. He would be the one who would be born in Bethlehem, and the one that was. Jesus knows what it's like to be a person. A human. He knows what it's like to be a man. He knows what it's like to be a baby. A young boy. An adolescent. Right? A young man. And then in the prime of his life, at age 33, he's cut down. But he knows it all that way. He knows what it's like to not have a roof over your head. There are people at Christmas time that are homeless. There are some people that wonder, how am I going to find another place to live. I mean, that happens all the time, right in this area. 
people find out I'm, I don't have a place to live next week. What am I going to do? Which God understood. Guess what he does? <laughs> he does understand. Jesus said to him, foxes and holes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He knew what it was like to wonder where his next place he would lay down, lie down would be. He knows what it's like to be tired. John chapter 4 verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey. Do you ever think Jesus got tired? Yes. Absolutely. God in the flesh got tired. He who does not sleep nor does he slumber had to sleep. Think about that. Matthew chapter 8 verse 24. Suddenly a great tempest rose on the sea so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Why was Jesus asleep? Because he had been busy the whole day before. He was tired. He was tired. He knew what it was like to be hungry. Probably a lot hungrier than the rest of us. Anybody in here fasted? I mean truly fasted for 40 days? You don't find many in the Bible. If Moses fasted for 40 days. If Jesus fasting for 40 days. But Jesus actually fasted. He, didn't, he did not eat for 40 days. I'm not encouraging necessarily to go do that, by the way. I don't think you need to. He's the one that fasted for us. I'm glad. And there was a place for fasting. But it is not a commandment in the New Testament to have you fast. We are told to pray. We are told to commune together, to break bread together. We're told a lot of things, but we're not commanded to fast. So don't run off on that. All right? Say, my pastor wants me to fast for 40 days. No, I don't want to attend your funeral either. But Jesus knows what it's like to be really hungry. Matthew 4, verse 2, and it says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. That's an understatement. He knows what it's like to be rejected. John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. You ever had someone in your own household not receive you? They don't like you. When I became a Christian, my grandmother didn't talk to me for two years. Now some of that I was away, but she was not happy. I praise God that that was reconciled later on. And one day when I was standing in a little church in Greenfield, Maine, I watched my grandparents come in to that little church and hear the gospel for the first time. Oh, I'm thankful for that. I cling to that. So they might not receive you now, but maybe they'll receive. And you know what? The Lord is gracious. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. And really, that's who a lot of times people reject. It's not you, it's the, it's him. It's him. He knows what it's like to be imprisoned, right? In that same section of where he's standing before Pilate. Pilate says, are, uh, are you, he says, you do not, uh, excuse me, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus knows what it's like to be on death row for no crime of his own. The greatest of injustices that has ever occurred in human history occurred 
when Jesus stood before a man who had the authority to release him, an innocent man, and this, this governor had the power to release this innocent man and did not do so, being a travesty, an un terrible injustice and yet according to God's plan God was going to take the most unjust moment in human history and bring justice between him and man and it would be through the death of Christ Jesus knew there was no other way Jesus knows what it's like to be alone and to be lonely and there are many verses like this one where it says at the end he departed again to the mountain by himself alone and maybe he wanted to go there alone, but maybe his other disciples that were with him, his disciples just said, I, I'm too tired to go this time, Jesus. You know, there are days I don't really want to walk with Jesus because I'm too tired. I'm just being honest. I have to. I, I do. I'm thankful he gives me so the, the, the strength and grace to walk with him. But there are days that I say, I don't really want to be what I'm supposed to be today. But thank you, Jesus, that you are. And you will never let me down. And you know what it's like. Even if no one stands with you, Jesus, you are still holy. You are still the one who is my Savior. And sometimes you know what it's like to stand alone too. You're the only one. But I say to this, to you, Jesus said to his disciples, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus knows what it's like to be patient and wait. Jesus has not celebrated that act of drinking of the fruit of the vine since he was with his disciples. Now, 2,000 years ago, one of these days, Oh, what a great multitude will gather at the marriage supper of the Lamb and will once again be able to partake with Jesus and drink of that perfect, holy drink that he talks about. For now we wait. For now he waits. He knows what it's like to patiently wait. Maybe you're someone this Christmas, you're waiting for something in life. Waiting, whatever it is. Waiting. I read this week of a dear lady, widow of Richard Varney. Richard Varney was, if you go by Eagle Lake down Route 11, you'll notice that there's the plane base where the warden service is. And it's named after Richard Varney. He was a warden pilot that was killed uh, in the line of duty in, in 1972. Um, took off with someone else in the airplane and the best they could figure out is that the person in the back seat when the plane began to go up just a little little plane float plane uh when he his seat let go a little bit and he moved and he grabbed that second stick and he grabbed it to, to hold himself the passenger did and what happened is the plane went up and went into a stall and went right down into the lake killed both of them his wife was 36 years old widow she remained a widow the rest of her life she just died this week uh, passed in her 80s and a dear lady her testimony was such that at a Louis uh, Louis Palau uh, um, evangelistic service she received Jesus Christ and there's a glorious testimony in the obituary for her and I just said wow thank you Lord waiting 
waiting, waiting. Raising kids as a widow. It's a hard thing. Some people have had to do that in this room. I, I could go on and on, but maybe you're waiting for something else. I don't know. Jesus knows what it's like to wait. He knows what it's like to be tempted. Matthew chapter 4, the devil comes to him after that uh, temptation, after his fast, and begins to tempt him. Tempts him in every way that we are tempted. And by the way, I won't go to that passage of Matthew 4, but you find in that where Jesus gives us the same pattern by where we can stand against the devil's temptations. He speaks the word of God. My friends, if you're not in this book and you don't know this book, you're missing out on one of the greatest ways God keeps us from sin. This book will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows really everything about being a human. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So if there's a temptation I haven't mentioned this morning, there's lots of them out there, Jesus still knows it. And yet without sin that's the difference let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need and then lastly the name jesus declares his uniqueness and by the way that's coupled in matthew chapter 1 with verse 23 where it says his name Right shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. As I mentioned earlier, there were other people named Jesus. But there's only one who truly has the title of Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Only that Jesus, the one that's in the Bible. The one who is risen and will come again. He's unique. Of all the babies of the world that have ever been born... Jesus stands alone because he's the only one that was fully human, but yet fully God, Emmanuel. That's why when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's making a bold declaration, and he's unique. He's the only one. He doesn't say there are many ways to the Father. He's the only way. There's no plan B. There's only the plan A. Have you chosen to follow Jesus as your Savior? Have you repented from your sin and asked Him to save you from your sins? That's what He came to do. Acts 4.12 Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. That's it. You know, if He hadn't come, we would have remained in the pit of sin. That's where we would be. And our human history would just probably, we would have undone ourselves and all be gone. This planet would be a desolate region of whatever, warfare, looking like a Schaffenberg in early April of 1945, just a bunch of burned out buildings and 
refugees and little children walking without parents, those kind of things. What a pit man has created. Yet God went down and he came into our pit. That's really the story of what Christmas is about. You see, it's interesting because the legalist will come along and say, don't you fall in the pit, right? They'll say that. Don't you go there. The religionist will come and say, I can tell you how to get out of that pit and avoid other pits in the future. Just look like me and act like me. The pessimist will say, you're going to die in that pit. The optimist, might, the optimist might come along and say, I've seen worse pits. The realist says, you need to accept your pit. The spiritualist says, there is no pit. But Jesus comes by and he says, I'll get into the pit with you and lift you out. Psalm 40 says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth and praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Aren't you glad that he came and that his name is Jesus? Let's stand and be dismissed this morning with a song.